0: we are knowledge institutions within societies and within global culture. And if we can share what we know and be useful to others, then why wouldn't we do that?
1: Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking And to help you make sense of the world. Hi, joining me for our first interview in a while is Professor Darren Hodgetts. I was fortunate to be a student of Darren's during my last semester at Massa University, and I was impressed with not only his extensive academic background, but also his engaging and fluent way of communicating the complexities of social justice issues. For this reason, I thought he would be the perfect guest to have on to discuss some of the things that we've been covering lately. His research interests include uh, urban poverty, homelessness, welfare, inequality, and how these issues contribute to health and well-being. He's authored or co-authored over 70 academic papers and published three books relating to social issues. He's a highly respected figure in New Zealand academic and public policy circles, having advanced action-oriented and ethnographic research methods to understand social justice issues by engaging directly with affected communities. It was a real privilege to speak with him, and he provides much clarity to the complex and often highly political social justice issues we've been exploring in the recent episodes of the podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did.
0: I'm Darren Hodgetts, I'm a professor of societal psychology at uh, Massey University at the moment. Uh, Prior to that um, I worked at the University of Waikato as a community psychologist um, and was involved in the registration program there and prior to that I worked in the UK and and in Canada as well, um, in public health in Canada. Um, I tend to do poverty research issues around social inclusion um, and so on, and also trying to make our responses to issues like poverty um, as effective as I guess we can do. Mm. These, of course, are complex issues, so there's no usually no one-size-fits-all kind of um, mm. solution
1: people often think of psychologists in the clinical sense. You know, it's a shrink or somebody you go to with mental health um, challenges. Yeah. And what I've found intriguing with this work in community and, and societal social psychology is that it's not necessarily dealing with individuals at, a, say, a dysfunctional level. It's more at high-level um, social issues. And I'm just wondering how you make that distinction and how you even end up going down that path Um, And what, just as a follow-on to that, um, what value does psychology bring to this field?
0: I think um, human beings are complex, and I think we need a range of psychology. So clinical work is important when people are in distress. I think community psychology and its North American manifestation actually came out of a lot of clinical psychologists wondering about prevention. Mm -hmm. And wondering about the social things beyond people, individuals control that was contributing to mental illness and then later physical and social ills as well. Mm -hmm. So it kind of developed in that context out of the mental health kind of community um, movements, if you like. And to me, I think what psychologists bring is an understanding of people because human beings from a community and a social psychological perspective are relational beings. Mm -hmm. We live with others. We interact with others. They're important to who we become and we're important to who they become. So a lot of the work that's done really is about um, having relationships and factors in play that are actually positive for people and not negative. And where there are negative issues, how do we actually address those? So, for example, if you're growing up in a crime-ridden neighbourhood without resources to support your education and so on, then your chances of staying in that life world are a lot higher than when there are actually programs that can help you engage with education as well as trying to deal with why are people offending and what can be done about that.
1: Mm. Um, uh, I should give people some background that you were a professor in the course I've just uh, concluded in this first semester of the year on uh, social psychology, and during that course, we considered three different approaches to um, psychology at a social level, um, the social cognition, critical, and and community. And the distinction um, was really sort of at the heart of the course about how we use different lenses to understand these issues and each have sort of value. Perhaps um, could you maybe explain those approaches briefly and um, why each might be important?
0: Yeah, I mean the reason the reason we did that is there are there are those there are other approaches as well. But I think complex social issues there's usually not one theory or one approach that's really going to crack it. And I think psychologists have worked from a range of different sets of assumptions mm. or theoretical ideas. So in social cognition, you're really talking about people's beliefs, their attitudes, and how those are linked to their behaviours and perceptions of issues and so on. So they really deal with the mental processes involved in that and how we might look at, say, things like climate change from the perspective of looking at people's attitudes and then if those needed to change, thinking about how we could work with people around those adjustments to perception so that we become more environmentally friendly, say. The critical approach actually, a lot of it grew out of um, the crisis in social psychology in the 1970s around relevance, the need to look at things collectively and not just at individual minds, and some of the limitations in a cognitive styled approach. Um, and it also introduced the idea that from a cognitive perspective, there's a tendency to, to look at individual brains and, 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 and thinking and attitudes and so on. Whereas they were arguing, yes, there is that, but there's also collective ideas. So social narratives that communities have about themselves are important as well. The stories we tell about other groups, the way meaning systems are actually collective and not just individual. Mm -hmm. And so they introduced those ideas. Um, And the community approach has been more about grassroots. It's less of a a kind of top-down academic exercise of trying to gather up information, make sense of things and engage in change process to working with communities to identify their concerns, problems and issues, mm. and then um, working to find solutions. Now, from a community perspective, you might draw on social cognitive models for one project mm. and you might draw on the narrative type or discursive work from a critical psychologist in another project. Mm. And I think what determines the work in that area is just the pragmatics of what's the best explanation we can generate for now that might lead to mm. a better situation for people.
1: There seems to be quite a significant crossover, I found at least in the community approach to say anthropology or sociology, where you're really working at an ethnographic level to um, understand communities from the inside as much as possible, as opposed to standing around with white coats and clipboards to just make notes. It's it's understanding the lived experience of people in their communities and how those issues are affecting them. Um, is that an accurate um, statement or, or what? What have you found? I think
0: it is, particularly in countries like New Zealand. And do remember, though, that there's still a lot of quantitative survey attitudinal scaling stuff that goes on in community psychology as well.
2: Mm.
0: So looking at, you know, community attitudes towards particular issues or problems and then using that information. But, yes, it it tends to be more... um, There's kind of two styles to research. One is a distal type distance research where the emphasis is on being detached and being having a critical distance from communities that you might be working with in order to think and act objectively. And, you know, for some scholars that works. But there's also a proximal approach, which I tend to align myself in my own research more with. And that is where you basically get in there with the community You immerse yourself and you come up with things together. Um, There isn't the same capacity towards gaining critical distance because that's not the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is often a shared political commitment to getting some change done. Now, for some psychologists um, who subscribe more to a, a physical sciences model of knowledge production and application, that can be a little bit jarring and and a little bit affronting to their values and that sort of approach. But mm-hmm. whereas to others who subscribe more to, as you say, ethnographic and anthropological techniques, then it's not an issue at all. And in fact, it can bring more accountability. Mm-hmm. And it really is about where different psychologists are comfortable in Mm. their approaches. So I'm not saying one approach is better than any other approach. It's just that they often carry different assumptions, and it's important to be aware of those so you know what you're doing and why.
1: Mm. When um, approaching this, I'd imagine that there must be a challenge as an academic or researcher going into these environments, and it's a bit about how I sort of came to you with this and what I've been trying to reconcile for myself and at a social justice mm-hmm. level is how does the academic um, become close enough to those communities to have enough credibility? Because I can imagine that in particularly marginalised communities, see somebody come in there who doesn't understand them, doesn't know anything about them, and is purporting to try and explain to a wider mm-hmm. group how these people are affected by experience and, and how... To you then bridge that gap as a community psychologist um, to basically be led in? You know, how do you um, get the trust of those people?
0: I, I think that's a really important point, particularly for communities that have been over-researched and over-monitored by outsiders. Mm-hmm. And that is the distal approach. A lot of communities, particularly economically and socially marginalized ones, are over that. Mm. and many won't tolerate it anymore as a research approach. They call it research robbery. Yeah. Someone flies in, administers a survey or does a series of interviews, then leaves
2: yeah.
0: and then takes all that information and then they actually see no change or benefit for themselves. Yeah. So from a community perspective, it tends to be more about who's going to benefit from this research are some early questions you might ask. Mm. Um, and then you build up from there. Then you might go and have a conversation with people. So at, at, at the end of the day, it's all about your ability to build relationships and trust and working relationships and then to maintain them. Mm. So we as a research group would tend to, let's say, homelessness, for example. When I first started doing research on homelessness, I was in London. I didn't know anyone at of NGOs. It was my first kind of lecturing job. So what I did is I talked to a couple of homeless people about who, what agencies do they interact with? Mm. And they mentioned a couple of key agencies. And then I rang those agencies and said, who I was and can I come and have a conversation? Mm. Initially, there was some real pushback and some resistance. You know, who are you from a flash university wanting to come here? We've had researchers before. And mm. so, but all I did is just said, oh, well, politely, you know, is it possible just to have a cup of tea? Cause I, cause I do want to do work in the area and I want to know about these things because I don't want to repeat those mistakes. Mm. And saying something like that gave me an invitation to a couple of cups of tea Mm. (laughs) with a couple of key people. Mm. And then from there, we started a conversation. And because I was quite open-minded, I didn't have a particular research project or an intervention plan in mind. They could see, and then we started talking about something that might be of interest to them, and then trying to find a relationship based on mutual interest Mm -hmm. so that we all benefited plus the clients. Once we'd established that, it was easy Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and it was easier to maintain. Um, You can get issues where the timeframes of academic work differ from the timeframes of the community. Sometimes they do some things quickly and we're slow and sometimes we're fast and they're slow. Mm -hmm. And I think you just have to build in that dialogue and that cooperation so that we know that we can, we understand each other's jobs and roles And then we can make those kind of beneficial and work together. And that just takes being open and talking. Like for a couple of community people I've been collaborating with for now 20 years
2: Mm.
0: in Auckland. Those relationships don't maintain themselves. You know, you have to, and you have to find the right people that you can work with. Um, Other colleagues in one of the research groups I'm involved in, there's been a collaboration between an academic unit and a group of a particular woman's refuge for over 30 years now where mm-hmm. staff actually move between, and that is way more organic and smooth, and other researchers have similar kind of relationships. So I would say the key is building trusting relationships and making sure the workers is of mutual benefit. Nobody wants a re- researcher coming in, extracting knowledge and going off and publishing it. Mm-hmm. I think particularly with marginalised communities, there are a whole range of sensibilities that make that a little bit problematic. Mm. And what it means as academics, and we have to start thinking about our methods of knowledge production,
2: mm. Mm.
0: of a will to action. Is this just about building knowledge of a problem or is it also considering possible solutions and so forth? Mm. Yeah. And, I, then, and then the conversation builds,
1: yeah. I, I People now
0: talk about things like co-design and mm-hmm. all the rest of it, and that's all part of this.
1: I recall you... Um, sort of spoke about that was one of the limitations that often happens with, say, the critical approach is it's very quick to identify narratives and, and all of the issues, but it doesn't offer um, ways that we can move forward with this knowledge. So I guess that's the, the key part of it. You being, were, yeah, go ahead.
0: Sorry, just being careful, a bit careful there. What I was talking about is a narrative approach, as in the chapters in that book. Mm. Critical um, Critical psychology can be quite diverse. So, in its Anglo Saxon manifestation, it tends to be more, you know, discursive analysis, um, exploring limitations and power relationships in psychology, the implications of our actions, and so on. And those scholars see that as their action. Mm. But other critical psychologists who are more of the community orientation, and these categories kind of do overlap, it's more about social change for public good. It's about working with groups to improve their lot in life, and that means social structures may need to change. So, yeah, and it can be difficult. When you take research that's based on just critiquing something, that's fine, but then not everybody takes the next step of saying, now what do we actually do about it?
2: Mm, mm. And and
0: that can be a really complex, tough thing. So to be fair to critical psychs, they're not all the same. You know, it, it's like any – same as the social coggy folk. There's a range of theories and a, approaches, but they have a general orientation. Mm, mm.
1: Um, I, th- I think yeah, that – sorry, Dave. No, fine. The, the critical part of all of this, to use that mm. expression in a, in a different context, is what happens with the information. So um, – yeah. How um, do you see, OK, so on the one hand, you could do the work, do the research, build the relationships, write a beautiful journal article with some colleagues, and it goes to the journal of um, X, Y, and Z, which is read by a specific cohort of academics. Um, and, uh, and then it gets confined to the annals of, um, you know, history. But what happens next? How do you bridge that gap between the work you do and an academic environment? and say policymakers or stakeholders who can affect change or even the attitudes of the general public? There's two things
0: there. One is peer review is really, really important and going through that process is really important for the standard and the quality of the work and also to get externals to come in and look at it quite critically and to with a will to try and make it as, as, as good as it can be, particularly in the area of poverty research and homelessness. Publishing is important because that's how policymakers often find us. Mm -hmm. So they'll do things like literature reviews and incorporate our work. So it's not to say that that stuff only stays in the academy because quite often it doesn't. You'd be surprised at who picks it up.
2: Mm. I think
0: that's one thing. And another thing is once though, once you've done that and you've done the peer review and you've got that stuff accepted, then what are you doing with that knowledge and that understanding? And I think academics now are getting better at Disseminating information through a range of different ways. So, journal articles are one; academic conferences are another. There's also increasingly encounter in spaces between policymakers and intellectuals, and between community groups and academics. So, increasingly, many people are getting themselves involved in that space. They call it scholar activism. This idea that we can, whilst generating knowledge and understanding issues, we can also do work towards actually addressing them. So the two things aren't incompatible. It's just we've got to get better at the latter part because in the past in our jobs we haven't been rewarded for that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We've been rewarded for what journals you publish in. Yeah, and that can be important, and particularly for some people. But there's also another whole side to the fact that often taxpayers are funding this kind of research,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that if you can make it useful and you can do that in collaboration, then why 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 not?
1: Mm-hmm. Is that a bit of a flaw? In the incentive approach, then, that um, for depending on what are the goals of an academic, you know, are they truly invested in the issues that they are researching or are they looking to further their own career? And what's the incentive around that?
0: It's a mix of both, and also the incentives are changing. I mean, we have this, what's in New Zealand called the Performance Based Research Fund, and it determines basically, it ranks academics and allocates monies to universities based on their output in terms of publication, but also increasingly on the impact of that knowledge that they produce.
2: Mm.
0: What this means is community researchers who may not be publishing as many articles because they're not just sitting there writing, they're going to meetings, they're engaging in other activities, Mm. that activity now counts in the assessments of these funds a lot more than it has in the past. And I think there's a lot of talk in universities now about what is a university in the new millennia. Now, I personally believe in the value of pure research, just investigative inquiry stuff playing with ideas, particularly in the preliminary phases where you're moving into a topic. I I wouldn't want to see that disappear because it's important. But we also have to value the fact that we are knowledge institutions within societies Mm -hmm. and within global culture, and that if we can share what we know and be useful to others, then why wouldn't we do that? And I think increasingly many universities are are pivoting in that way, orientating to say, Yep, traditional scholarship and those activities are still important, but there's other things we can do as well and that we should do as part of the societies in which we result, you know, reside. So, for example, when part of our job, an academic job is often structured as 20-40-40, 20% service, 40% research, 40% teaching. Now, that all vary depending on the particular academic their skill sets and their interests. Some will do more teaching, some will do more research. We should all do service. Mm. Service traditionally was be on the library committee or the faculty ethics committee or whatever. But now increasingly in institutions, if you are on the board of NGOs or services, if you're on a management faculty and you're doing consultation for public good with particular services or organisations, that actually counts as part of your service role. So service is now being conceptualized by many institutions as both internal to the academic workings of the university, but also external. So what they call the town and the gown, that not only should we be involved in our own institution, but we as educated people can involve ourselves in service. For example, I was on the Hamilton Christian Nightshelters Trust for a decade. Mm. You know, we set up, we reviewed the service. We provided governance to the manager. I was involved with a colleague in designing a a homeless service in Taurama, Mm. which is still going. Um, And these are things that you can do based on what you've learned from research and what we know about. And because we read all the literature Mm. on service provisions to homeless people and so on, it's easy to sit in a room and actually synthesize and share that knowledge with people who are trying to design a service. Mm. to be as effective as it can. Mm. That in my previous job counted as part of my service Mm -hmm. role of the 20% of my job. Mm. So I think as institutions kind of shake themselves down and orientate a little bit more back towards this kind of work, then I think those distinctions can kind of hopefully be managed Mm. Um, because most academics want to see what they produce be used. Mm. If you know what I mean, you know,
2: that, yeah.
0: they, they want it to be relevant. It's just a matter of we're going to have a range of ways of how people do that. And different areas probably require different approaches.
1: Mm. I guess I'd like to move into more of the specifics um, about some of the work you've done and and some of the specific social issues and homelessness being one of them. I know you have worked extensively on um, health inequalities, social determinants of health, and urban poverty. So I'd like to maybe start with define the term structural violence, institutional violence, because it all seems to stem from this. And people hear this a lot.
0: Well, I mean, often violence is considered, you know, you you have a road rage incident, someone hits someone else, you know, it's a clear example of immediate violence. I think Structural violence is a slower form of violence, but has key incidents like that. And structural violence is the invisible violence that occurs through bureaucracies and other institutional means that marginalises some groups from society. So it's the treating of people unfairly Mm. at an institutional level and through our social structures. So, for example, in the welfare sector, historically over the last two decades, we adopted, we kind of fused the logic of a penal system or a correctional prison system, or the welfare system. Mm. And we started treating beneficiaries as if they were trying to rip us off, as if they were dodgy people, and we criminalised the poor. Mm. And then what we did is we started doing things like restraining the amount of access to food grants they could get or access to benefits or housing supplements, and this basically exacerbated poverty. So it's a form of violence towards Mm. those people because we're depriving them of necessities based on a set of biased assumptions, and then we're engaging in institutional practices that make their lives worse, not better. Mm. And so I would argue that that has a massive negative impact on that population group, and that's why we use the term structural violence. And this form of violence is often invisibilized because the people who it's perpetuated on often have less of a voice, they're less affluent. Um, and so it goes with social marginalisation and so on. Mm. I think these things are important because we can't just focus, when you focus on an issue like poverty, it's not just because someone is lazy and stupid that they're poor, there's some brilliant people Mm. who struggle with poverty and it's often poverty is driven by social structures and inequities more than just individual failings and so When you start using terms like structural violence, you start looking at the structures. Is the structure actually helping people Mm. to get on with life and become, you know, if our goal is to have people who are in sustainable livelihoods, leading good lives and contributing to society, what's the best way of going about that? I would argue hitting people with a stick through conditions of welfare and penal welfare And then when they don't do what you want, just getting a bigger stick Mm. and getting more aggressive towards them, that hasn't worked. It didn't work. We tried it for 20 years, and it didn't get rid of poverty. Mm. There Mm. are other approaches, more humane approaches that can be used that are less violent, where we might actually get the type of results we want as a society. So then the issue becomes looking at people's experiences of poverty and dealing with a welfare system and saying, what's just clearly stupid here and not working and wasteful, and how could we do things differently?
2: Mm. And
0: so saying to people who are that, you know, in any other business, you would talk to the clients and say, what do you need? What's going to be useful? But yet in areas like this, we don't. Mm. We assume that we can't actually have, so we have all these conversations about the poor, but we don't have enough conversations with them. When you have a conversation with them, particularly single parents, and I mean both men and women, they are some of the most astute budgeters and motivated individuals I've ever met in my life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Being alone with three kids on a welfare benefit is hugely
2: mm-hmm.
0: cognitively taxing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It, it, it takes a lot of creativity to manage the different or navigate the different institutions to make things work, to deal with the needs of your kids, and to carry all of that. You know, we, why aren't we supporting people like that rather than punishing them for their situations? Um, and I think there there is a need, and we are in countries like ours, um, seeing a reorientation towards more of a social safety net than a punishment net, mm. and mm. I think that's an important shift because I think we're through that. So for things like why did we cut access to allowances for single parents to access tertiary education and then be surprised when they're not socially mobile, mm. Mm. It makes absolutely no sense. By having a small grant like that that enables someone while their children are young to where they can find time to study and to upskill themselves is is a bit of a no-brainer, really, mm. because it means when those kids are old enough to go to school and so on and that person would like to enter the workforce, they've actually updated their qualifications and their skill sets, which mm. make that transition a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to think a little bit more long-term about these things and in a more supportive way. And 99% of people will play ball when you take a more humane approach. And so let's just focus on the majority and try and get some movement.
1: Mm, I think that's an important um, point that um, maybe there's an assumption from the, the majority that people, and this comes from this sort of neoliberal ideal which has been created over the last you know 20 30 40 years that we're all responsible for our own destiny and so if people are in these situations they've made poor choices um they need to you know stop making poor choices and why should i have to pay for other people's mistakes or lack of motivation or whatever it may be that we've convinced ourselves is the cause of these problems and
0: and, and the way the way the reason you should pay is because if you don't we're all going to be worse off societal wise mm.
1: and you
0: know it's just is, pure self interest yeah. <laughs>
2: you
1: know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's that's the point that I really want to draw out there is why do people in the majority um, see it that way? Because as much as we can blame the structure for uh, why people end up in precarious situations, then we can also blame the system for why people don't see the real problems as well. You know, people don't wake up in the morning and decide to be racist or decide to be this or that. They're a product of their environment to a certain extent. Yep. So Um, there's
0: been a little bit of social engineering going on around that, because the reality is that we didn't always see it that way. So welfare states, for example, came through because a majority of people saw the importance of social safety nets and the reality that poverty is not just an individual's fault. That's why many OECD countries ended up with these structures and they vary across different societies in terms of how they work. But if you track, so let's take the U.S., for example, because those type of arguments seem to be more prominent there and then get exported like a virus to the rest of the world. Mm. Um, Otley Stolt and I wrote about this in our 2017 book. What we did is we went and looked at all the literature on media reporting of poverty across the U.S. and the OECD. And what we found is that in the 50s going into the 60s, there was a real narrative that poverty was a structural thing, but through education and investment and social safety nets, We could actually reduce the poverty rate and help people into sustainable livelihoods and and to get on and then be responsible for themselves. And so, and they had a lot of effect. I think they, and this is from memory, my numbers are probably not totally correct. We cite them in the book, but they took the poverty rate from something like fourteen percent down to six. And this was people accessing, you know, food stamps and all the rest of it. Then what happens is a lot of low income, when you have generous poverty, a lot of low income employers or some low income employers don't like that because then it undermines their ready reserve of people that they can exploit on low unlivable wages. Um, So what happens is they then lobby for change. So right wing think tanks and the rest of it, particularly with Reagan coming in and so on, started shifting the narrative to saying, Moving from a war on poverty, which was done initially, and it was about using structures to actually reduce the poverty rate and mitigate its impact, to a war on the poor. Mm. And what that meant is it was a shift in ideology um, about individual responsibility, that people are poor because of their personal deficits. And then what that that had a result of doing is exacerbating and growing poverty. Mm. So that kind of mindset doesn't actually solve the problem. It makes it worse. Now, clearly, people can take responsibility for themselves. We need to be responsible for our actions. But we also have a responsibility to each other because that's part of the ancient notion of the commons and who we are as human beings, as dignified beings. Mm. And so, in a sense, both explanations are important because if you're, you know, there are individual factors in poverty, but most people who experience poverty are usually born into it. And it's really hard to break out of it, hence the concept like a poverty trap. Mm. People can get trapped in there. And what we need is systems that enable people to be able to transcend those circumstances and have other options in life. Mm. And that's through education, through training, through work, but meaningful, humane work. And that's why I work quite a lot with work psychologists at the moment because the writer's been very good on saying welfare is evil and work any work is a solution to poverty well the reality is most people in poverty in the globe are not on welfare they're working so if we are going to accept that work can be a solution to poverty then it has to be decent work that pays the living wage and so if that's the case then how do we do that and how do we sustain that so one of the things that's been happening in new zealand for example is the government has been slowly moving the minimum wage to a a living wage. And I think we're within a couple of dollars now of that. Mm. You've got to remember that living, that minimum wages were fought very hard for as a basis level of sustenance that would enable people who were working to lift themselves out of poverty. And Mm. over a couple of decades of neoliberalism, what we've seen is the demise of collective bargaining and the rights and ability of workers to secure benefits for themselves, a lot of casualization of work. Some mm. employers see this as flexible. It mm. might be flexible for them, but it's precarious and insecure for mm. many workers. Mm. And so now we're realising that with inequalities growing, the cost to society is large in terms of having to provide welfare and housing support, the healthcare costs of the stress of that on people's lives. Mm. That maybe if we had decent, sustainable, supported jobs, then um, we might end up with different social outcomes. And I think that the stuff around decent work in that is somewhere where the left and right can come to a consensus. Mm. Not all employers and low-income employers are exploitative. Some employers are very good. Like in our living wage project, you know, I personally was really taken aback by the humanity of many of the employers
2: mm.
0: who were wanting to do the best by their employees but also juggling sustainability of the business, mm. cost of increasing wages and benefits, and then looking at, you know, will the productivity gains, the reduced absenteeism and sick leave, reduced recruitment costs actually cover that? And these are complex things for organisations to work out.
2: Mm, yeah.
0: But you can see through the living wage campaign that's run by, out of ETU, the trade low-income trade union, is they've been very effective in working with accredited employers. They've got, you know, good relationships with everyone from banks to manufacturers, who are accredited living wage employers. And I think it's created an interesting and um, contemporary conversation between employers, unions, and the workers themselves.
2: Mm.
0: And that, that's got to be a healthy thing because I think most employers I've met want the same outcomes. They just tend to have a different idea about how we might get there. Mm. I think mm. one of the issues that we face, particularly in these areas like poverty reduction, is the left and right haven't really learned how to talk to each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think we, we really do need to talk to each other about different options and to think about something that's sustainable as a solution. Because we both want a good society where people can get on and do their own thing, but there's just different ideas about how you get there.
1: Yeah, sp- speaking to that, there's this notion of uh, in terms of equality, equality of opportunity, and equality of outcome. And uh, mm-hmm. in some of the, the work I did in a couple of podcasts ago, I talked about the social contract and John Rawls's um, theory of justice and justice is fairness. This idea that um, maybe to achieve equality of outcome, we do need a little bit of inequality to balance the scales to allow all people to um, um, be equal in the long run. And I think this is something that is a really difficult um, political, social um, sort of spectrum for people to negotiate. that's It's very difficult for people in a privileged position to see it as fair that others should be put in a more optimised position or be given some sort of leg up to help them, and they think, well, I never got that leg up, so how is that fair?
0: But they usually did get that leg up. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. They usually
0: inherit money. Money usually comes from money. I think you made an interesting, you know, Rawls is talking about procedural fairness. So a structurally violent institution is procedurally unfair. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of its definitions. So I would argue that removing structural violence and focusing on procedural fairness is a really important thing. If you meet this criteria, you get the support. There's no, you know, tidying those things up is really, really important mm. and having a fair, equitable system. I think also when you're talking about affirmative action and so on, you've got to realize that individuals have histories and they come from with different life chances we're not born into a meritocracy Mm. so some of us are born with access to dry warm houses good nutritional food and excellent education others aren't Mm -hmm. and then we can't expect the same outcomes i mean some who are born without those things do remarkably well despite that fact. but imagine how much more they could achieve in life if the playing field was balanced a bit so a lot of the a country like New Zealand has a lot of institutions. You look at our universal healthcare. You know, you shouldn't die on the streets with an un- with an illness
2: mm. in
0: our system. You should be able to access. If it's not acute, you may wait a little while, but you have access to healthcare. Whereas in some other countries, it's mm. disputed on whether healthcare should be a human right.
2: Mm,
0: mm. Um, and these these are kind of differences. So if you don't have access to healthcare for everyone, then how can we expect everyone to perform and be well? And get on with life, you know. So, I, th- I, I, I. Sorry, I, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but I think you're right. It's incredibly complex when we start getting into these issues, and we can come up with general rules, but then there will always be exceptional places where it kind of breaks down a bit.
1: Mm. Yeah, it, it's all of these things are very politicized, uh, frustratingly so. So, if we look at a, say, a laissez-faire capitalist economy, that neoliberal idea, which basically says, well, look. Um, uh, assumes that everybody does more or less have equal opportunity and it's up to you to work hard and and make, make things happen for yourself. And um, if you fall into that political or, or that worldview, then it becomes very difficult to convince people otherwise that we aren't all set up um, with the same kind of opportunities at the outset. But the fact that some people do come from very humble or austere beginnings and are successful in some realm maybe as much of it's a testament to the individual in many ways it they can be used as an example about we'll see they could do it so so why couldn't you it makes it more well, of a- i think
0: individuals individuals are able to get through, but a group isn't mm-hmm. you know and and yeah and and look, some individuals have done remarkably well and and you know we should applaud that, and we should try and find out how and why um and so that we can grow that um. I think it's very hard to sustain, empirically sustain the view that everyone has the same chances in life. I mean, it's just factually incorrect. Um, So the issue is then to what extent do we as a society intervene to level the playing field? So I would argue that free, well, near as free as you're going to get in in an economy like ours, education in places like New Zealand is a a very, very good thing Um, because, it. I mean, there are many countries where people simply don't even get access to basic education. Mm. So, you know, there's the inequities within societies, but there's the inequities between them as well. And I think as a species, we have to start thinking about this Mm. a lot more than what we do at the present.
1: Just um, talking a little bit about your own personal background, and and I'm not familiar with it at all, obviously, but... um, I understand, you know, you're Maori of um, sort of ethnicity or, or certainly closely associated with that. And and I, I wonder that, um, you know, you've obviously been successful in an academic career and what drove you in that direction and what were some of the challenges that you've had to overcome because New Zealand is notorious with this idea of tall poppy syndrome that people who kind of are successful or do stick their head above the parapet tend to get knocked back down. And I'm just wondering what your experience of that has been.
0: I think culturally, I mean, I identify as a Pākehā person primarily because that's kind of what I was raised to be and that's how I am to the world. Mm. Um, I work a lot with Māori academics and draw quite a bit on those worldviews, but I think my political perspective in the work comes from a a kind of traditional left-wing kind of collectivist orientation and set of values. So a set of values around the fact that, you know, People should contribute, but at the same time, we should be helping each other.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that, and a real belief, which is an Anglo-Saxon kind of belief in the commons, this idea that we're born into a world with resources. You know, we all we all have rights to the commons. Um, Guy Standing's written in his Charter of the Forest. You know, writing about the Charter of the Forest and some of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's really, really important that we have to share these resources. And an economy is an artificial thing. There's nothing natural about it. Um, it's something that human beings produce, and we can change how we do it and how we share the prod- produce from that. I'm not saying we shouldn't reward hard work. I'm not saying that um, some people will do better economically in life, and some people will do better socially in life and so forth. I mean, there's, there's got to be room for difference. Mm. But at the same time, I think the way the inequities and the wealth concentration is occurring at the moment, that's just simply unsustainable. Mm, mm. And I think that's where we have to start thinking about a different way of ordering and, and organising ourselves. So I think a lot of groups, be they Pākehā, Māori, or Māori or Pacifica, Asian, European, um, there are a lot of people with this kind of collectivist orientation as well. Um, and I think we just need some broader conversations about that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, and and they have been in our society for a very long time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like public health, mm. um, universal education, and so on. And I think these institutions, we shouldn't underestimate how important they actually are um, to helping people reach their potential. Because mm. if we don't support people to reach their potential and then they don't, can we then just turn around and blame them? You know, no individuals in Ireland unto themselves. So, if you start thinking that way, you start thinking, okay. So, you know, there's some basic things we can do that we know are important. Um, I personally don't believe in a private rental market. I know that we have one, and I know that people have played by the rules in investing in property, and some have done very well for themselves out of it. But it creates perverse problems in an economy and in our social system. Mm where now, you know, a huge amount of people's incomes are just disappearing on paying for a place to live. And that's probably quite, well, quite often it's a wet, damp, mouldy place to live that isn't actually healthy Mm. for them.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's made a commodification of um, sort of basic human rights to a certain extent, hasn't
0: it? Yeah, I think it has. And I think that's had knock-on negative effects, say, for kids. If you're moving a few times a year, Mm. around different dwellings. You're probably moving schools as well. Well, that makes it harder to make friends and be stable in your education. Mm. We're actually undermining the education of those kids. And when we look internationally, we see, you know, be they public or private housing trusts that reinvest their money into their services. I'm thinking in the Netherlands and other contexts like that, we have models of housing that are quite efficient and effective, and I think we have to do something about that because the knock-on effects Mm. Are just too negative for us as a society to to keep doing what we're doing, and there are some some timid steps towards addressing the issue by the present government. How far they go or not is, is still you know is still to be seen really.
1: Mm, mm. You've worked um, overseas, uh, Canada and London. Um, how important has that time been in shaping your? views and your work that you do now? And what was, uh, are there sort of differences that you see in different cultural approaches to these types of social issues um, that uh, stick out to you?
0: I I think that's really important, particularly for young academics out of a PhD, if you can go overseas and get some experience in a different context, because you've got the discipline that's similar, right? So you've got a kind of intellectual home, but the context do differ quite a lot. I think one thing that really struck me about Canada, particularly being up in Newfoundland, was community, how strong the communities were, how strong the emphasis was on community. Um, and I thought that was a really, really positive thing. And they've got a kind of a system that's similar to ours but is kind of private insurance in its orientation. So it's a very North American mm-hmm. take on welfare, but it's a lot more humane than south of the border if you know what I mean. I think England was more familiar culturally um, but different again. Um, And I think so many of our policies and ideas are derivative of the UK historically Mm. that I could understand how they kind of did things. I think being in the UK when I did and having to work with charities and around the issue of homelessness was positive for me in the sense that we didn't have as much of that in New Zealand. It grew kind of when I came back because our homeless population grew, our levels of poverty were growing, because neoliberalism was really bedding itself in. And then I saw that sector grow here, for good and for bad. I mean, some of it's positive, some of it's not so positive. Um, So it was a good opportunity to also see things at scale. I mean, London is much bigger than Auckland. You know, the issues that they face, the scale of that stuff is Mm. much bigger.
2: Mm.
0: Um, So I think that was really interesting. And I think it was my time in Canada and the UK that really kind of convinced me around getting involved in organisations who were trying to help people in poverty or who are homeless um, external to the uni and trying to say, well, how do I produce knowledge that can keep, I can keep my job as an intellectual, but also that informs efforts to help?
2: Because
0: mm. I think, I mean, one thing I found really interesting is in a lot of left-wing circles, often Christians, get given a hard time. I'm not a Christian myself, but I really respect the values and the efforts of those who are on the ground providing the food and the housing and trying to be supportive human beings to others. You know, I'm just not prepared to knock that kind of work because I might not subscribe to the particular version of faith that those people subscribe to. And I think that's quite important as well. You know, as well as the the right having its problems, and it's blind spots. I see the same in the left, like particularly in the moment where we're quite fractured. We kind of have a cultural identity politics left and an economic left, and they don't kind of get on that well with each other. Mm-hmm. Clearly, different axes of disadvantage are important, be they related to ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, gender, disabilities, and so on. But mm-hmm. so is work,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so are incomes. And, yeah. and these things, I, I can't see why they're being split off Mm.
1: the way they are. Yeah, it's this um, sort of modern or well, fairly contemporary idea of wokeness and everything that's really been hitting the mainstream. Uh, and in the podcast I talked about in social justice, I kind of opened with a bit of a caveat really to say that um, social justice has become such a, a buzz line or buzzword lately and it surrounds these um, very complex issues of um, gender and um sexuality and and all of the rest of it, which are important issues in their own right, but don't let it detract from the fact that social justice is a far um, bigger concept with a much longer history, um, which considers, you know, we can't let, if people hear the term social justice, they roll their eyes. Jeez, I've had a guts full of hearing about social justice. And I fear that is um, taking the attention away or the focus away from issues which have always been there and they're still issues of poverty homelessness, and that sort of stuff, you know?
0: I think the right actually wields more symbolic power than the left to name and define those issues. So you can take a positive term like social justice and turn it into a negative one. For Mm. example, the idea of wokeness, being woke, is to be aware of the structural factors that are creating some of these divisions and differences between different population groups. Mm. It's not actually a dumb idea at all.
2: Mm, mm.
0: It's quite a progressive idea. It's saying be alive to the way history has shaped the present mm. and continues to, that when you have histories of slavery and really appalling work conditions and, you know, um, sexism and all the rest of it, um, these things live on and the opportunities between groups and so on. Um, and so being alive to those structural factors, again, gets us to see individuals and where they're at in a context. Mm. So in and of itself, I don't see it as a problem at all. I think what we're getting into is some of the kind of microaggressions on platforms like Twitter where people are getting caught up in point scoring and, and rather than saying, actually, can we figure it, we, can we agree that inequality is a problem both economically and socially?
1: And finding common particularly
0: a problem in consumer cultures because if people at the bottom don't have enough money to consume, that's going to undermine your economic activity because a huge amount of it is churn. So there's... You know, I, I just think that it's unfortunate that these terms get labelled as negative and as if they're this one thing when they're more complex than that. Mm. I mean, who wouldn't want a just society where people are treated this procedurally fairly mm. and given an opportunity to participate? You know, uh, I can't see why that would be a negative issue. Um, but well, I it, think the symbolic power is...
1: People are, people are being afraid that, so they're going to have to give something up or something's going to be taken away from them or we, I can't talk in the way I used to talk or people don't have a sense of humour or whatever, all the ways we've rationalised um, the society which is optimised for for the privileged people. Now they're having to confront that and uh, potentially give it up or some of it up and I think people are struggling to let go um maybe and that's creating that friction you know we need to look for the common ground and my purpose with this type of conversation is to uh just illuminate kind of the broader conversation to step outside of your own echo chamber to see the complexities of these issues and what privilege really means because um, you uh, didn't deserve your privilege any more than a person who is marginalized, doesn't deserve their circumstances. It's all a lottery. We just kind of came out this way and um, uh, we need to see that for what it is. I think that's where I'm trying to, come from for people is somebody who is in the privileged majority. Um, and so if that's wokeness, then as you say, you know, it stems from awakening to being awake to the realities of the worlds that we live in. And uh, I guess one of the um, things that people say is a, um, to combat this or as an antidote to it perhaps is, um, well, we can't just keep dwelling on the past. We've got to look to the future. And um, obviously that uh, is fraught. But there's also some truth to it as well. We can't continually bog ourselves down in the mistakes of the past. So how do we bridge that gap between the past and the present? I think New Zealand, particularly with the um, uh, Treaty of Waitangi and all of the issues, you know, has a long history of trying to reconcile the wrongs of the past with the future colonial narrative and so on. And we're seeing this in a broader conversation about social justice. So where do we draw that line?
0: I think that those are some really important points. What I would say about the history thing is that if you don't know your history, and we didn't teach our history in mm. um, our schools, we're starting to now. Then you're just going to you're more you're more at risk of just repeating the same mistakes. And I think you know we we have to move forward, but we can move forward being aware of where we've come from because it shapes where we might go and where we might want to go. And I think you know if you think about things like colonialism, it's it's not over. It's still with us. Its implications are still with us. And we need to understand that if we're going to address those disparities that have come from it. Mm. Um, and so, like you said, it's not an either or thing. It's, it's how do we manage these things? I think one of the things we lack is we don't in our society have a public forum anymore where we all participate. I think we're, we're so fractured. People have written about eco chambers and all the rest of it, but we don't. And, and and I think some of our journalists, I mean, they go on about trolls online, but man, you just have to read the Herald some days to realise that trolling is alive and well in mainstream journalism. And particularly if you look at uh, coverage of poverty historically, it's been there for some time. Hmm. So I think those gatekeepers can be part of the problem, particularly those who drive ratings by driving division. Hmm. And clickbait and controversy sales and all the rest of it, but we have to find ways where we can include people in the conversations to move forward. Um, How we achieve that is a huge area of research right now, because I mean, people have identified these concerns and saying, you know, the more we become, the more we've kind of hived off into different, you know, platforms and, and and interest groups and the rest of it. The more our divisions may have increased. I mean, whether they actually have or not, or whether they've just been surfaced, we're yet to know. But we've got to create these encounter spaces where people can come together across difference and actually have a healthy conversation. I've never been a fan of um, Biden, for example, and I have my doubts about him becoming president. Um, He's clearly better than his predecessor. Um, But again, that's, you know... um, another conversation but what just after the election it was just leading yeah just after the election he was in a room and there were some you know really hardcore trump supporters who were quite right wing and were calling out all these conspiracy theories and people he was with were starting to shut them down and he kind of said oh hold on a second we need to actually be able to talk about this stuff Mm. and so they put in that you know these um People to the right, you know, Republicans put in a couple of points about him that were factually incorrect, and he just calmly said that's not actually the way it is. Mm. It's because of this, this, and this. And I could see in that an attempt to say we can't – I think one of the things that worries me about social media is it's about shutting people down and winning in that argument rather than saying – how do we actually have a conversation about this stuff so we can start thinking about dealing with the true complexity? Because in the left and right, there are both insights on both political perspectives. No approach, even, even the distinctions, quite hard to, to maintain today, but no one side, if you like, has all the answers or all the solutions. And if we want to move forward as a society, then we have to learn how to talk to each other. And I don't think we do at the moment.
1: Mm, no, that's right. There's a lot of talking past each other um, yeah. where people are just not willing to to listen. And uh, I think maybe that comes right back to the work you do with these communities is um, it's number one about going in there and listening to what people have to say, understanding their experience and, and try to make sense of why they feel the way they feel and why they're saying, um, framing things in a certain way. And um, I, I guess that's where i coming back to it. You know, I see that value of psychology mm. and, you know, related fields in the humanities to try to give a more rounded, articulate voice to those community groups and so on, that we can really get a bit a better handle on these issues because they're so difficult. You know, this is what is becoming more and more evident to me as I continue my studies is that there's just nothing simple. Uh, there's no beginning, middle, and end to these things. Um, it's a very dynamic, overlapping, um, complex environment where, say, health um, inequalities come from um, many other factors, um, you know, the, mm. whether people smoke or, you know, substance abuse and so on. I mean, th- these are not isolated issues, they're all interconnected. And uh, we, we need to sort of dig deep enough that the, um, interventions, policies, the understanding of these issues is broad enough that it addresses the upstream effects as opposed to that example from the textbook of uh, always just fishing uh, fishing bodies out of the river without actually mm. looking at why they're in there in the first place. Yeah.
0: And I think, too, it's important, like in our research teams, like, in, you know, it's important that people from the left and right work together.
2: Hmm.
0: And have that conversation, even in the knowledge production process, you know, and collaborating with people. Um, I've got a couple of close colleagues and friends who are very different to me on the political spectrum. That's the healthy, important thing mm. um, because you know you have to think through how do I explain and communicate these ideas? How 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 do I listen to these and understand it? You know, that's one of the reasons we started looking at work and income. Is the right we're pushing hard that work is the solution to poverty? You know. Push people, But their idea was push people off welfare as soon as you can, and mm. then they're going to sink or swim while most sink. Mm. So that's- doing that is just can be counterproductive long term. However, it doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation about how do we make work a solution mm. to poverty. And I know some on the left don't agree with this at all, and that's fine too. Mm. but maybe it is a space in which we can find some common ground. Okay, so if work is important, how do we make it humane? How do we make the income from it livable and sustainable? What are the implications for things like parenting? You know, mm. um, how do we balance those things for people? So flexibility in work. Um, all the, and, and there are different ways of structuring work and structuring an economy, and I think we need to, and then that's a conversation that, of course, extends well out beyond psychology, Mm, mm. because economists have been in that space for a lot longer. You know, there are people in management disciplines, Mm. um, labour studies, er, areas like that. So then you're into a situation where you have to start collaborating with these other disciplines because psychology has a particular bent, Mm. but it needs to be in conversation with other orientations as well.
1: Mm. Right. So just returning from some technical difficulties, I, I just wanted to play devil's advocate and say, is this a futile exercise? You know, what hope do we really have um, that we can affect real change? And, and perhaps you have any, some examples from your work where you've actually seen some positive sort of benefits and um, that, that this is not just going to be sort of people working um, and it's ultimately we've just our know, hit against the brick wall.
0: Um, I, I think the first thing there is that you that people, scholars have always done this kind of stuff and as of other activists. And I think societies do change and for the better and the worse. And I think, so for example, there's a conversation around the way New Zealand and um, part of our contribution to that um, movement was um, sharing our research with a particular city council that was um, considering whether or not to adopt a living wage, and the councillors were quite split, and just being able to present the evidence and to talk frankly about the costs and the benefits and how it might work, we would like to think contributed to their decision to actually do it, to try. Now, that means that, you know, a couple of thousand people are going to earn a better income, um, which is going to have all sorts of knock-on effects. So I, I do think... The key is to think that we're collectively responsible for the change, that no one individual was actually going to drive
1: it. You sort of uh, avoided my question earlier about how you uh, ended up into this field. What drove you sort of, what was the inspiration for you as a young person to go into academics and, and take, did you always expect you'd end up doing this or what did you want to be when you
0: grew up? Oh No, I was an early school I was an early school leaver and, and I spent a number of years, as a lot of working class men do, transitioning um, class-wise through the military. And I got access to education through there. And I think the more I engaged with education, the more – because I knew how bright my parents were. Um, yet we, we grew up in, a, you know, in quite a deprived kind of household. We didn't have a lot of money, um, went hungry from time to time. So I knew what it was like to grow up in those neighbourhoods and be in those environments. And then in the military environment, you know, I was always a practical person. So I learned a lot about planning. I learned a lot about understanding situations, uh, working with others, teamwork, that kind of stuff. So I just kind of married the two together. And then because I did okay as an undergrad, I got a free master's. So I was the one that there were a couple of us who were the top graduates in our year and what it meant is we got a scholarship that said um, we had a free master's and a small stipend. So I thought, oh, well, I might as well do a master's. And then my masters got turned into a PhD. So it got upgraded. So that meant I got through PhD quite quickly. And then it was like I had a choice to go back into the military as a field psychologist or to take up a postdoc in Canada. And I talked to a the former partner of one of my uh, PhD supervisors. And she was like, the military job's always going to be there. Why don't you go to Canada for a couple of years and broaden yourself out? And so I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. So Mm. I did that. And then that led to, you know, fate kicks in to these Mm. things. And then my first lecturing job was at the London School of Economics that has a history in doing poverty Mm. research. And so when I was trying to figure out what am I going to do research on, I decided there were homeless people living downstairs, so I just started (laughs) talking to them. And then it just went from there. Then I called these agencies and then it ended up doing some projects in London. And then when I came back to New Zealand, I wasn't necessarily going to do more homelessness research, but there was the first national conference on homelessness organised by... um, the previous Auckland City missioner and her staff Dame um, Diane Robinson, who I'm still very good friends and a colleague mm. with. And so they asked me, they had read some of my stuff, so they asked me to be the keynote. And Diane and I ended up having a bit of a debate because I was a fan of state-based welfare systems. And of course she was more into the NGO kind of private mm. model. And then across that debate, we decided we wanted to do some work together And we've kept kind of debating these issues over the years, but we respect each other's positions. And this is what I mean about working with people who don't necessarily agree with Mm. each other. You can still get stuff done. You know, we just have to be open and respectful in the conversation. And I think what really does worry me at the moment is I don't think the left and the right are really, there's lots of misconceptions of each other. And, and, you know, like being an ex-military person, people might assume I'm a gun nut. I'm not a gun nut at all. This stuff just doesn't interest mm. me. But, you know, people will make assumptions that, oh, you've been a professional soldier, you must be, you know, a violent person. and It just doesn't work like that. There are circumstances that lead people into those particular roles in society, mm. and some of us leave them and some of us mm. stay in them. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, happenstance, is a big part of this stuff. You know, opportunities arise. Kurt Lewin wrote it really well. He talked about unfreezing moments in systems, Mm -hmm. that from time to time systems are open to change and it's really about recognising those opportunities Mm -hmm. for change and then adapting to them and responding Mm -hmm. to them. And we've had that quite a lot with different government organisations, like when they were doing a lot of work on reviewing the welfare system, we were asked to write a think piece because there was some wash-up money in a particular government ministry So we seized on that, started working with a policy person and produced some documents that influenced that process. We didn't drive it, but we used our knowledge to contribute and inform the process. And I think that's the strength in realising that these are collective efforts done by a range of stakeholders. You're never going to get everything you want, but it's worth being in the conversation and contributing to that process of a society healthily reviewing itself and thinking about how can it do better by all its citizens. Sometimes that requires redistribution of resources. Well, that's a collective decision to make.
1: Yeah, Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing all this time um, with me and, and getting a bit deeper into some of these issues. Using this small platform I have to try and bring these ideas to a more general audience so people can see that these are not like a buzzword social justice or inequality what are these what do we really mean by this and what is some of the work that people are actually doing in these fields and how is it making a difference so it can really start to quantify all of this stuff for people i think this is one of the benefits of where anyone has a platform if you choose to put the time into it while it's not obviously a peer reviewed uh, academic journal which would be awesome in its own right i feel that you know in terms of reaching people, there's different ways. And if we can leverage on the technologies we have and people's willingness to, you know, go to the gym or walk to work or driving in their car stuck like in traffic and they're listening to this type of conversation, they would never normally otherwise have this you know, uh, I mean, I've had to do many years of university and pay all the money to get to this point to have a conversation with you. Most people, for whatever reason, don't get that. So uh, I think it's great to be able to distill these ideas to a broader audience and show people the real work that academics in this field are doing. So yeah, I really appreciate you kind of helping me to, to do that.
0: No, thanks, David. I mean, it's a pretty cool initiative. And um, yeah, just happy to be invited.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.